0: It is well decided and we agree that students do not shed their constitutional rights at the schoolhouse door. However, it is equally well decided that those constitutional rights will be administered in a way that is sensitive the school environment.
1: Welcome back to episode 4 of the High School Scotus podcast where two teenagers and their legal scholar guests talk about how the decisions of the Supreme Court and the words of the Constitution play out behind the schoolhouse gate. I'm Elise Fenner
2: and I'm Hannah Swaroff.
1: In episode 4, we'll be taking on a kind of heated and definitely politically relevant topic. This is our last episode on the extension of students' first amendment right to free speech. So we thought it was time to focus not on student speech, either voluntary or mandated, but educational speech in some ways. The books and curriculum that schools make available to students. What do students have access to? Can schools ban books from school libraries? What control do schools have over what they teach? Most importantly, when can students and parents step in and whose job is it to decide these questions?
2: So to actually examine those questions... First, we're going to look at Island Trees School District v. PICO, which is a Supreme Court case that overruled the school board's decision to ban certain books from the school library. We'll then examine how PICO's modern-day influence and how the case has been interpreted by lower court.
1: The meat of our episode will be two conversations with experts on the subject. First, we'll speak with April Dawkins of the Library and Information Science Department at University of North Carolina, Greensboro. Professor Dawkins has written extensively on intellectual freedom, incorporating diversity in literature, and how school librarians select books. So
2: basically, just to sum up what Elise said, she's incredible. Then we'll be joined by Emerson Sykes, a senior staff attorney with the ACLU's Speech, Privacy, and Technology Project. Mr. Sykes is an expert on First Amendment free speech protections and the role that schools play in broadening or limiting students' worldview and their understandings of history.
1: We know you're all here to hear their voices, so we're going to skip our word of the day and move straight into a quick discussion of PICO in similar cases.
2: So in 1975, three parents attended a Parents of New York United conference about education legislation in New York. The conservative group gave the parents a list of objectionable books, that's in quotes, and they discovered that 11 of those books could be found in the library at either Island Trees High School or Island Trees Memorial Junior High School.
1: At a meeting a few months later, the Board of Education ordered that the books be removed from the library for being, quote, anti-American, anti-Christian, anti-Semitic, and just plain filthy.
2: When a group of parents and staff called the, quote, Book Review Committee attempted to discern whether it was necessary to remove all the books, they were only unanimous on the removal of two books. The board paid no regard to the recommendations of their appointed committee and still chose to remove all 11 books.
1: The district court and circuit court were split on whether the books were removed because of their educational value. The board saw something that really was wrong with these books and a reason why it shouldn't be included in schools or because of the social, political, and moral tastes of those doing the removing. In a move reminiscent of Justice Frankfurter's dissent in Barnett, the district court gave wide discretion to the schools, advocating judicial restraint when considering the daily operations of school systems.
2: The Supreme Court heard the case in 1978 and their decision was similarly splintered. Three justices were fully on board with the students. Removing the books was unconstitutional. Justice Blackman joined them to make a plurality, but hesitated to endorse a universal right to receive information, finding instead that this was an exceptional case in which the sole purpose of banning the books was to prevent exposure to specific political ideas.
1: So what did the plurality find, and how did it reach this conclusion? Well, Justice Brennan asked two questions. First, does the school board have absolute discretion to remove any library books that they want? And if there are limits on its discretion, did the board go beyond those limits in this case?
2: The answer was no, and then yes. First, they said that First Amendment rights are diminished at school but they are least diminished or should be most firmly protected in a library. While a school might have absolute discretion over the curriculum, teaches it doesn't have absolute discretion over the books that students can access in the school library.
1: In the First Amendment, the plurality said doesn't just protect a right to voluntary speech, as in Tinker, or a right to opt out of speech, as in Barnett also promotes public access to discussion and the proliferation of information. In light of these guiding tenets, a school library can't be under the total control of the school board.
2: Okay, sure. But shouldn't schools still be able to ban books that are, like, vulgar or lewd or indecent, just like they can restrict vulgar, lewd, and indecent language?
1: Well, yes. The court in Pico found that the banned books were selected to advance a specific partisan or political motivation rather than an educational one, like banning really vulgar language. At best, the selections were irregular or ad hoc. They didn't set out to achieve one educational purpose, but rather to weed out specific viewpoints and perspectives.
2: As Justice Brennan said so powerfully, quote, To permit such intentions to control official actions would be to encourage the precise sort of officially prescribed orthodoxy unequivocally condemned in Barnett.
1: So the court's decision in West Virginia v. Barnett, which we talked about in last episode, had a huge influence in the plurality in Pico. But Justice Berger's dissent was bitter. While the plurality warned that school boards were given unilateral authority to ban books, the dissent argued that this court would become perilously close Becoming a super censor of school board library decisions.
2: Berger gave it as good as he got it, writing an acerbic counter to Brennan's reasoning in the case. He said that the case asked the court to consider, first, whether local schools are to be administered by elected school boards or by federal judges and teenage pupils, and second, whether the values of morality, good taste, and relevance to education are valid reasons for school board decisions concerning the contents of a school library.
1: Berger might have lost decisively at the time, but PICO, according to the 11th Circuit in ACLU versus Miami-Dade County School Board, means really not that much. Four justices agreed that the PICO books needed to stay. Four thought they could be removed, and one justice reasoning stopped before answering the constitutional question. Since the justices really reached a standstill, the decision couldn't be considered precedent, that court said. What are we talking about? The
2: Miami-Dade School Board removed Vamos Cuba, one edition in a series that offered generic observations about traveling to various countries from their library. The 11th Circuit was not bound by the Pico holding and determined that the book had unmistakable factual errors and ignored the reality of life in Cuba. The court criticized the book for covering up, quote, that the people of Cuba live in a state of subjugation to a totalitarian communist regime.
1: The district court found that schools couldn't remove a book just because of perceived inaccuracies. That gave the schools far too broad authority. But the circuit court concluded that a preference in favor of factual accuracy is not unconstitutional viewpoint discrimination. Between
2: 2000 and 2009, The Harry Potter series was frequently challenged because Christian families claimed that the nobles glorified witchcraft. In a 2003 district court case, Towns v. Cedarville, a group of parents convinced the school board to require permission slips in order to check out any of the books in the Harry Potter series. This time, the district court found that such a regulation violated the students' First Amendment rights. The three board members that voted to enforce the restriction could not cite specific ramifications of allowing unfettered access to the books, I could only speculate that the books might cause some sort of delinquency or disobedience in the future, a defense which is clearly indefensible under Tinker. The members also felt that the books promoted witchcraft, which they classified as religion, proving their intention was to target specific viewpoints and ideologies.
1: So yes, the Supreme Court said in PICO that a school board can't remove a book just because it objects to the opinion promoted in the book. That violates students' First Amendment rights. And in cases about Harry Potter, it seems clear that students should get to read the book. But as the line between what is removed to censor ideas and opinions and what is removed to create a suitable educational environment grows more opaque, PICO's plurality is diluted.
2: But since PICO, Vamos a Cuba, and Count versus Cedar Belt, the, the Harry Potter book case, the books being banned have changed, and the reasoning has changed as well. Before 1999, books were most often banned for obscenities or sexual content. Thus, when the board removed the books for being anti-American, it was sort of an unusual explanation.
1: Today, however, books that discuss LGBTQ plus identity, sex, or race are at the top of the contentious books list. For instance, in 2020, the most challenged book was Melissa by Alex Fino, a story about the experience of a transgender child. And the second most challenged book was Stamped, Racism, Anti-Racism, and You by Ibram X. Kendi and Jason Reynolds.
2: We've talked a lot about books, but we also want to quickly discuss curriculum. We are going to touch on Supreme Court cases about curriculum that violates the Establishment Clause, i.e. that endorses religion. But we will give a super-duper brief primer on a recent case decided by the District Court of Arizona. In Gonzalez versus Douglas, the District Court struck down a ban on teaching ethnic studies, specifically a Mexican-American studies class, on the grounds that it was rooted in racial animus and violated both the 1st and 14th amendments.
1: In this case, the court had proof of clear racial discrimination as the main impetus for passing the ban. A senator who advocated strongly for the bill, made blatant statements against Mexican-Americans. Banning the bill also had disproportionate effect on the Latino students who made up the vast majority of students taking and benefiting from the class.
2: This also proved that the law violated students' First Amendment rights, the court determined and Pico, the plurality, along with Justice Rehnquist, who dissented, found that school boards could not remove books from a narrowly partisan or political motivation or from a place of racial animus. And that's exactly what Arizona did by
1: banning the ethnic studies curriculum. To help us understand the modern influence of PICO and the controversy around banned books and curriculum in our classroom, we are now joined by Professor April Dawkins of the University of North Carolina, Greensboro. Professor Dawkins was a librarian for 15 years, wrote a dissertation on how librarians choose books, and is an intellectual freedom scholar. Professor Dawkins, we are so lucky to speak with you today.
3: Thank you for inviting me to join you.
2: Our first question is about you as a teenager. As a teenager, were you a bibliophile? What were you interested in?
3: I've always been a bibliophile. I I was a strong reader from elementary school. I I remember particularly the librarian at my elementary school sort of taking me under her wing and, and fostering that love of reading. And as a teenager, I didn't have the best school library as a teenager. I didn't have a whole lot of books that really appealed to me as a reader. So a lot of the reading that I did was based out of a public library instead of the school library. And, and also I was fortunate that my parents supported my book habit. And so I I read widely, I, I read a lot of fantasy and science fiction for pleasure. And these days, I also teach young adult materials. So I still read a lot of young adult fiction.
1: Yeah, I think students can relate to that. I definitely remember avoiding my school library and going straight to the public library for the unfettered access to a bunch of different books and genres and everything you could ask for.
3: I think one of the issues also is that a lot of school libraries just didn't have the money to add recent books to their collection. And so what they had were classics and things for class. And so that's also a problem across the country is is budgetary issues. Uh, and what they actually have in the school libraries is based on that.
1: Yeah, definitely. I think half of my school library was like an eight huge A to Z encyclopedias. I know you spent fifteen years as a school librarian. What do you think were your most memorable experiences during that time, or what made that really special for you?
3: Well, always working with students is the most important part of, of what you do as a school librarian, and and. Being able to interact with them and make connections, either helping them find books to read for pleasure or also, you know, supporting their homework habits or supporting them academically as they do research. That that was really the important part of the job. There are other things that go along with it, like, you know, managing a budget or, you know, making sure that the library is open and accessible. But interactions with students are always the, the things that are most memorable. I'll I'll give you an example. I had a student who found a book that he really loved. And so I helped him make a connection with the author. He was not a a big reader. And so I was like, I'm really excited. He's reading a book. And so he made a connection with the author and emailed with the author. And that author ended up naming a character in his second book in this series after this student. And so I later was able to help them, you know, connect again based on that so that was a really fun experience that's so amazing that is the coolest story ever
2: did you deal with the removal or addition of controversial books during your time
3: as a librarian i faced what i would call informal questions about content that i had in my collection i never went through what we call a formal reconsideration process I'll give the first time I ever experienced that was actually in my second year as a school librarian. I was really working to add more young adult books to the collection. Every time I was actually back at my old high school where I knew the collection wasn't great. (laughs) And so I was adding lots of new materials. And in particular, one of the things that I added was LGBTQ content. And I added Boy Meets Boy by David Levitan to the collection. And I always did a big display of new books. Uh, in the library before I actually shelved them because I wanted people to see what was added and go ahead and check them out. And I actually had a complaint from a faculty member, a fellow teacher at the school about the book and it it really opened the door to good conversation about how the collection should represent students, how it should provide access to all students. And although he walked out not agreeing with me, he did understand why school librarians make the decisions they do in terms of what they add to the collection.
1: Right, so that's interesting because you've talked about this before, is that like you were given leeway kind of as a librarian to make your own decisions about the books in your library. Like the faculty member might question your decision and maybe won't even end up agreeing with it. But you have the final authority to decide what goes in your library. Do you think that's something that held true or has changed today?
3: Well, school libraries typically have policies, either at the school level or the district level, about how materials are added to the collection. And usually what happens is school boards sort of delegate that responsibility to the professionals who are trained to do it. And hopefully they trust them to do that. So I typically made decisions about what went into my collection. And this was true throughout my career as a school librarian. Usually a principal signed off on that list. Sometimes I had an advisory committee that gave input, but they didn't have veto power. But the decision was ultimately mine uh, of what went into the collection. I am seeing today where there's a lot of questioning of that. We also have a lot of schools that don't have professional school librarians in them anymore. That number has declined significantly over the last you know, 15 years or so. We, we've seen a 20% decline across the country. Uh, and we see that particularly problematic in schools with large historically underrepresented populations. Title I schools uh, that don't have a professionally trained school librarian And so either the library is being run by volunteers or paraprofessionals who don't have the same training that the librarians do in terms of ensuring access and equity.
2: That's so interesting. And so now you're a professor and we were curious if there was a specific impetus to your decision to return to school and study kind of the selection process for adding books to libraries.
3: Well, one of the things that is important to me is this whole issue of access and equity. And part of that process is what school librarians choose to add to their collection or choose not to include and add to their collection. And this has been a, an issue that's been around as long as there have been libraries. I mean, we've had you know, controversial content and people questioning what goes into a collection and you know what does it mean to serve the public? In a school setting as well as sort of a public library setting, so this is something that I saw as an issue that is ongoing. It's not going to go away. It sort of seems to happen cyclically. You have sort of hot points in our history where censorship occurs or challenges to materials occur. And so I really wanted to focus on the issue of censorship. And then that sort of turned into the focus on policy. And so how does policy guide decision making? And then also policy implementation is important. You can have a policy on the books. But then then if people don't follow the policy, then that is even a bigger issue. and That's really sort of where the legal side of things come into play is when it is the failure to follow policies and follow due process.
1: I want to talk about the legal side for a second, because I think it's easy to talk about, you know, equity and access without thinking, you know, how can we defend this on the legal side? So Mm -hmm. do you think is the First Amendment a big defense for freedom to access and freedom to receive information?
3: Yeah, so the, the First Amendment is the cornerstone of that. And people are like, what do you mean the First Amendment? It doesn't say anything about access to information or, it, but freedom of speech is, is where it's, it's rooted in. And it's the idea that to make informed speech, therefore we must be able to access information, to, you know, to speak with some authority about anything. And it also has to do with the distribution of information. So part of that is distribution of ideas and pamphlets and things like that. Therefore you have to have access uh, to that information. So so the right to receive information has been around a long time. And and really, this became significant in the 60s. Justice Brennan talked about this in a decision in 65, which dealt with the postmaster. So it had to do with the post office and and dissemination of ideas. But that's really where its strength has come from. It's really been sort of understood from that point on as being very much tied to the First Amendment freedom of speech
2: yeah continuing on this trend what precedent did the supreme court case pico set for when books can be removed from the classroom and does this precedent actually impact reality on the graft?
3: so pico is an interesting case i mean it's the only case dealing with school libraries that has gone to the supreme court uh, in 1982 is when they heard it and in that case the supreme court um did rule in favor of returning the books to the shelves and sort of supporting this idea of access to information. But every single justice wrote an opinion on it. It, Usually you have a majority dissenting opinion, but then they all decided they wanted to weigh in on this topic, which has somewhat muddied the waters in terms of what's the important thing, but sort of two basic ideas come out of PICO that have been then subsequently used in later cases that have gone to district courts and, and, and appeals courts. Uh, but the one is that that school boards have to follow their policy. Uh, they have to follow due process. They can't just sort of preemptively remove materials without following their own procedures. And the idea is that if you don't follow your process, then that sort of gives a little smell to the whole decision. <laughs> and the other thing is is that they can't make decisions based on sort of disagreement with the content, that they they have to not be discriminating against a specific viewpoint. And so that sort of viewpoint discrimination idea comes out of PICO and gets straight from some other later cases. But the whole idea is if their intention, and so the, the question is this use of the word intention, if their intention was to suppress a specific type of content then that's tainted. It taints the idea of of why they're wanting to remove it. And when they don't follow their due process, it sort of hints at this idea that their intent was wrong. And then other cases have sort of built on that. I think one of the issues we have here is it talks a lot about books have to be educationally suitable and can't be pervasively vulgar, which are terms that are squishy is what I call it. They're open to interpretation and so that is where a lot of the controversy comes into because I'll, I'll hear complaints about content of a book and and they'll say this is explicit or this is pornographic and I'm like I don't think that word means what you think it means because if we're using legal definitions it's not what they think it so it, it's a pico what is what we rest a lot of things on but the case itself and the write-ups about it and and the opinions about it didn't make it easy to bring to court.
1: I think that's really interesting because I got a similar read of Pico in that, you know, it did establish a baseline, right, to have books in your library and that books can't be banned because they have a specific intent to push away certain viewpoints or ideas on a partisan or political basis, and especially with racial animus. But I think the interesting thing for me about PICO is that the lower courts have interpreted that you know, if you're trying to remove things that might not be true, like fact finding, or if you're think something doesn't advance educational values, you can also remove it. And those everything related to that just seems very ambiguous and open to interpretation. Do you feel the same way?
3: Yeah, that has been the big issue is one is one person's definition of vulgar versus another. And and the other thing is that a school library is different from, say, classroom content. So classroom content, you want it to be educationally suitable and, and support the curriculum, but the library, the school library is different because it is a place of voluntary inquiry. And that's the phrase that I like to use and has been cited, is the idea that the school library is not just about the curriculum, it's also about you know, students exploring what they want to explore. And therefore, there should be more leeway in what is in a school library collection than perhaps what is in a classroom curriculum. And then sort of the same standards don't quite apply in a school library compared to what might be supplemental reading material in a classroom setting. Thank you so much. What have you seen kind of changing over the past
2: year or two? Who are these Complaints most frequently coming from and about what
3: books? Well, we sort of see a couple of trends in the books that are being challenged right now. A lot of, some of it has to do with politically motivated lists of books that have been created uh, by leaders in positions of power. I mean, probably the biggest example is Representative Matt Krause in Texas, who submitted an 850-book-long list of content that he wanted their Department of Education to review. And this was tied to an anti-critical race theory bill in Texas. And so, and, and also a bill that was like, we don't want our students to come across anything that makes them experience discomfort. And so these books on that list were a wide range of topics. They weren't just dealing with racism and other issues. They also dealt with sexuality and sex education and, you know, all kinds of different things. In North Carolina, our Lieutenant Governor came out and spoke. He had spoken a lot about LGBTQ books and they were LGBTQ centric. So we're seeing some list-based things. There are some community organizers out there, and we're seeing a lot of that um, happening either through the Established Moms for Liberty group or through local parent groups. There's a lot of question about, you know, whom has standing to challenge materials and collections. So that depends on the policy and procedures of each school district. Some school districts say you have to be a parent, child, or faculty member. Some school districts leave it wide open to pretty much anyone. So when I see someone come with a list, I think they have an agenda. If they come with a complaint about a specific book, then it's usually because they're, you know, they're concerned about their own child. But my worry about all of this is we talk about people's rights. Parents do have the right to control a lot about their own children. But when they want to extend that right to protect everyone's children, and that's how they phrase it, I want to protect all the children, that then begins to infringe on other parents' rights, and that is other children's rights.
1: I think it's an interesting shift that you've even been noting yourself from when you started as a librarian and the decision really rested with you to include books in your library. But now we see legislatures and individual politicians taking up this issue and, you know, bringing forward, these are the lists that we think should be removed from schools. This is what we think content should be like in our school libraries. Why are they taking up this issue and what detriment does it have to students and to school libraries?
3: I think that it's part of those overarching culture wars that we're involved in right now about, you know. What, where, sh- where should we be moving forward as a society? We're becoming a more diverse society, and that makes a lot of people uncomfortable. And so, I, I think it's become sort of a political talking point. I'm going to protect your kids. I mean, it was it worked for Virginia's governor, Youngkin, in his election campaign. He, he was like, I'm going to go into schools and I'm going to stop this. So, I think. In some cases, it's a political point. A lot of it has to do with the the culture that we're currently in. In terms of the uh, impact that it has, it's sort of the overarching theme of we don't trust educators. You know, we've sort of had this huge shift from the beginning of the pandemic where, you know, they're lauding educators for all the work they're doing to try to reach kids and support kids in their learning while we were remote for a while. But now it's... It's sort of a backlash against educators. It's also, I think, part of sort of an anti-intellectualism movement in the country of wanting to control what people know and learn. And what impact does it have? I'm afraid that students who have been marginalized in the past are going to be marginalized again, that they will not see themselves in, in the materials that are in our collections, that the rallying cry will be, well, they can go to the public library or they can go to the bookstore and buy these materials. You know, we don't need multiple of them in our school library, which I think is a false argument because, you know, we have many communities that have no bookstores. We have many communities that don't have public transit for students to get to public libraries. So if we're going to talk about equity of access, then they need access in their school library to all this content. The other concern I have is even in when challenges fail, and often they do fail, the they, material re- remains in the collection, particularly if they follow their policies and, and have review committees, often the review committees choose to retain the material. Even if that occurs, it's sort of a chilling effect on what school librarians are going to add to the collection, either because of administrative directive to, to avoid controversial content Or just wanting to protect your job and not deal with the stress and headache of going through a challenge. So I I worry that the long-term effect of all this will be a lack of diverse content in our collections caused by this. Yeah, thank you for sharing that. And related to this
2: idea of diverse content, you have this super interesting concept in your class and policy that I really like. you require that students must choose a book that has LGBTQ plus content. Why and do students ever get upset or refuse?
3: But this happened a few years ago, actually, when I was a doctoral student teaching at South Carolina, their young adult materials class. And we had a a required reading list and we always had LGBTQ content on that list, but it wasn't its own category. And so what I found was that I had school librarians in the class or future school librarians who were avoiding that content and and we're pretty open about avoiding that content because they they didn't agree with it and and that's one of the things as school librarians that we do and and as part of our sort of code of ethics as librarians is that you know we don't have to agree with all the content we put in our collection it doesn't mean that we you know we support all of it and we want to create you know that diverse collection. So the decision we made was we're going to have a whole category that's LGBTQ, and we want to you know require our our students and these are you know, adult students. Most of them are you know twenty two to sixty five. You know they, they range in age uh, because they're graduate level students to read a book that has LGBTQ content. And I will say that the majority of the students who read that come away saying, I didn't think about it this way. I didn't realize the challenges that LGBTQ students face. And so it sort of opened their lives. Now I've had a few that have still been super uncomfortable with it, but they've all read it. So they have done that and they've seen the the need to have it in the collection. And so that's really the, the purpose behind it is we want to make sure that our school librarians are prepared to represent all of their students in the collection. And, and that's why we sort of force their hand. <laughs> and you know, it's some of the strongest literature out there today.
1: I think what you're saying really hits on a certain point in that it feels like sometimes people that are advocating for the removal of books haven't even read the books themselves and don't really know what the content has. Like I was reading a case about Harry Potter books being taken out of libraries, but that, you know, the board hadn't even read a Harry Potter book ever, if in years. Um, So what impact does that have when people that haven't even read the books are making the decisions?
3: I've been sitting in a lot of school board meetings and listening to people complain about books and I've listened to school board members and and quite often what they are doing is pulling excerpts from a book. I mean, they're passing it around through social media and it's just, you know, this short paragraph from a book and then that becomes the basis of the complaint. And, you know, anytime you take stuff out of context, it becomes more inflammatory. (laughs) You don't get all the other things in that that are related to that that incident or whatever it is in, in the book that they find objectionable, which is why, you know, in many cases when we have a formal complaint filed, there's often paperwork involved with that. And we ask them, you know, have you read the book in its entirety? And sometimes the the complaint will not be accepted if they say, no, we want you to read the whole thing. That's also when a review committee should read the book in its entirety. And so I I think that's also part of what distinguishes young adult literature from adult literature is that often, although there are tough topics dealt with in young adult literature, almost always there is this sense of hope, this sense of learning from, you know, the experience, the sense of, of growth that occurs in the book. And you miss that if you only look at the excerpts. And the excerpts are really charged because it's it's some of it's really tough to read, particularly those books that are geared towards 17 and 18 year olds. So taking it out of context is a, is a big problem. And I was sitting on that school board meeting two weeks ago, and the school board was talking about it, and I was listening to school board members argue with each other about whether or not they should judge a book as a whole instead of just from the passages. So it was an interesting conversation.
2: Yeah, that is really interesting. In an ideal world, what would students see in their school library? Like what's your dream school library that every child in America should have
3: access? To? Oh, I, I think in an ideal world, students would see themselves in the books that are in the library and, and all the different content, not just you know, print books, that they would also see a world that's different from themselves in, in the collections that they are exposed to because you know, we want to expand their knowledge and their ability to interact with everyone around them. I would like to see collections that are current, that are well-maintained. You've got a professional librarian there who can provide reader's advisory and talk with students about the books, you know. So there's a couple of key things there. You've got to have the budget for it. You've got to have the staff for it. And I would hope that these libraries are open and accessible and that students are using them and enjoying both the space and the materials in them.
1: Hannah was very optimistic, and I don't mean to turn that back around, but I want to... <laughs> ask what is it okay for us to remove from school libraries is there a line that we can draw between saying like (laughs) you know this is vulgar because it has x amount of swear like I know we can't do that but how do we draw the line between when it is something that's just like one little instance or encapsulates the whole book and how do we draw that line I think that
3: that's a great question to ask because there, there's not a line. I mean, we're not going to say after the fifth curse word, then that book is banned. That that's not going to happen. I I think we look at, um, a couple of factors. I mean, if you look at our selection policies, that should guide the decisions we're making about what to include. We don't make decisions about what to exclude. We really do it from a, a point of inclusion instead of exclusion. And so school librarians who are professionally trained make these decisions based on, you know, who is in our school and do we, what do we have to represent them in the collection? Uh, So that's maybe, that may determine what languages are there. We're also going to make decisions about age appropriateness. And uh, a lot of this has to do with, we look at reviews from lots of different sources of the books that we're considering to add to our collection. And I want to include as much as possible and what my budget allows me to include. And, you know, when the budget comes into play, then often what will happen is controversial content might not be included because the budget is so limited. So you want to go with the safe choices. that are not going to get challenged because if the book gets challenged, you're removed from your shelves, then you've now wasted that money. And so that becomes an area of concern as well. And and that that worries me in this whole sort of self-censorship possibility we have because of the challenges taking place. But there's not a clear line. I mean, sexuality is fine in a high school book, you know, that, that is, you know, perfectly okay. LGBTQ things are fine in elementary books, but they're not going to deal with, with sex. (laughs) They're going to deal with gender issues at, at the elementary level. So, you know, age appropriateness is important. Although that term gets thrown around a lot, but we have to remember that our schools serve a wide range of ages. And so if you're in a school that's kindergarten through fifth grade, what a fifth grader reads may not be appropriate for a kindergartner, but we still have to have the material for both groups of kids. Middle school is the hardest uh, because sixth, seventh and eighth graders, I mean, 12 to up to 14 or 15 year old. Uh, those are very different ages. And so middle school becomes sort of almost like sort of a battleground about books because what's appropriate for a sixth grader or really what's appropriate for an eighth grader doesn't really serve every sixth grader, which is why the library is a place of voluntary inquiry because if a sixth grader encounters something that makes them uncomfortable, then they should turn that book back in. And that's part of you know having a professional librarian there to have those conversations to guide people to to books that are the best for them at that point in time so for students who are
2: listening not to keep being the optimist but i'm okay with that role students who are listening and want to be able to continue to access the best books possible for their age what can students do to ensure that they have access to reading and books and what should
3: teachers do to help make sure their students can read widely I love this question. I think students need to be activists. They need to be aware of what's going on in their community. They need to know if there are challenges to materials to their collection. Yeah, I encourage them to use their libraries. (laughs) You know, the more you use the library, the more that they're showing for that and, and for that access. I think when they see challenges occur, they need to speak up. Their voices matter and the voices of their Parents, caregivers, guardians, grandparents, they matter as well. Because right now, the narrative is being driven by a vocal minority. And, and so we, we need everyone to be involved in this because it impacts everyone. You know, a single parent having a complaint about what their child is reading is one thing. But then when they want to determine the reading choices of everyone, that's a problem. And so we need students to stand up for their rights. And you do have rights. You have the right to access information. You have the right of free speech, and I find that school boards really respect it when students stand up and speak in front of them and advocate for what it is they want and they need. Teachers can do the same. I think this is impacting a a lot of teachers, particularly social studies or history teachers and our English teachers, with particularly with the types of books that are being challenged in the curriculum, and so we don't want to. Uh, not teach history, which you, know, you have to teach all these really difficult concepts in history. And if you're you're sort of muzzling that topic, you're not allowing it to be spoken about, then you're not getting a true picture of, of where we have come from and where we wish we were going. But students can have a, a big impact there. Teachers can have a big impact. But it does take being brave stepping forward, speaking up, and I hope that
1: everyone will do that. What a note to end on. Professor Dawkins, thank you so much for joining us. We were so lucky to have you here, and I can't say how much we appreciate it.
3: Well, thank you, Elise and Hannah. I was excited to be invited, and I can't wait to see what else you're going to do in the future.
2: And now for our conversation with Emerson Sites a senior staff attorney at the ACLU's Speech, Privacy, and Technology Project. We are so grateful that Mr. Sykes took time out of this really busy schedule to speak with us about such an important subject.
1: We like to start all our conversations with talking about what our guests were like in high school. Were you thinking about students' First Amendment rights, or what were you alternatively interested
0: in? Thanks for having me. It's a great question. In high school, if you would ask me what I wanted to be when I grew up, or when I finished school, I would have said it was becoming increasingly clear that I was not going to play soccer for the rest of my life. So I think I might have recently given up on the idea of playing soccer for the rest of my life. But then I had already been sort of bitten by the travel bug in early in my high school career. And then I was lucky enough to, to do some traveling with different high school groups. And so I was really interested in international politics, international relations, diplomacy, conflict resolution, that kind of thing. So I think that there's a a pretty straight line from, from those early interests to what I'm doing now, but I wouldn't have said exactly what I'm doing today.
2: Was there a specific moment that inspired your interest in First Amendment rights and how they relate to students?
0: Yes. I mentioned sort of traveling around high school. One of the most important trips was actually before I started high school. The summer before I started high school, I went with some family friends. They grew up down the street from me to South Africa. And the the parents had fled the apartheid regime. They had been activists in the 80s. And they ended up being my neighbors in Massachusetts. And in 1997, we went back. And this is when Mandela was president. And it was, like I said, just before I started high school, and just seeing everything is very complicated. South Africa has lots of challenges today, but seeing how dramatically things have changed in that country when people change the laws, they change the political systems, they change the the rules that govern the institutions and how they affect people's everyday lives, how they relate to each other. So that really was a a formative experience when I was about 13 years old that really got me interested in, okay, how do we improve people's lives by changing the structures that govern how society runs. Because what I've seen is that nothing's permanent. These things are always changing every day. They might seem like they never change, like they've been the same forever, but they're always changing and there's always the possibility to make them better. So that's sort of was my initial inspiration to get into, to work that I thought could help improve, you know, people's lives. My specific interest in campus speech and the First Amendment is much more recent. I actually ended up working mostly in international human rights after graduation. It wasn't for 10 years after I finished law school that I really started litigating my own cases, to be honest. And so I came to free speech and protest work through working on international human rights and the right to protest all over Sub-Saharan Africa. Again, the idea of how do we make sure That the rules that govern who can protest about what, how you can criticize the government, how you can call for reform, all sort of goes back to that initial idea of like, how do we create the conditions for social progress?
1: I think that's really interesting in that it is about changing the actual laws, but also about changing the laws that allow us to change the laws. So making sure that people have the right to speak and the right to protest as a foundation for changing the actual laws that are problematic in our society. I wanted to ask you, how would you define your personal views on what students have the right to say and what they have the right to access in general related to the First Amendment?
0: Great question. I think, you know, as as the famous Supreme Court case says, you know, students don't lose their First Amendment rights at the schoolhouse gate. So we at the ACLU have been, you know, litigating almost all of the major Uh, school speech cases at the Supreme Court, including most recently BL versus Mahanoy, which your listeners may know as the F. Chair case. But as much as we believe that there are clearly defined First Amendment rights that students have not only to speak, to share their opinion, but also to receive information on a broad variety of topics without undue censorship by the government. And it's also worth noting that the rules do differ slightly for k-12 schools versus higher education so i know that you all are in high school but soon most likely will be um, in college and interestingly the sort of first amendment protections in college are especially strong but they are i think most courts have said uh, there can be some more restrictions in public school than you might have uh, in other types of environments so i think for us the priority issue at the moment, in terms of campus speech and school speech, are the, the book bans that I know that you've already been discussing a bit. My colleagues and I on different teams within the ACLU are trying to respond to these quote unquote book bans, book reviews, pulling books off the shelves because of the topics that they cover. And then I'm also working on mitigation, trying to challenge these state laws, the many state laws. We have two cases pending now. I wouldn't be surprised if we have more forthcoming. Uh, But challenging what we're calling these education gag orders, which we think violate the student's first amendment right to receive information in the K-12 Cup.
2: Yeah, and I feel so lucky that I was able to hear from you about student speech rights during the ECLU Summer Advocacy Institute over the past summer. And I think that all of the students who are listening to this probably would really enjoy that. And so they should definitely do it. But do you think that the issue of academic freedom kind of crosses partisan lines? Why or why not?
0: Traditionally, academic freedom has been a sort of consensus issue. You know, everybody, you know, it's complicated. As I said, as you sort of move into university life, it's very different from my school. i have i have I went to a boarding school. Uh, so it was a little bit more like college. But the thing that's unique about college campuses, is that it's where you study, it's where you live, it's often where you work if you have some kind of campus job. Many people are TAs as well as students. So you have all these different roles that you might play on this campus, and yet it's a place where courts have said that we want the widest breadth, the widest uh, space for new and controversial ideas to be tried out. Right. Because we think of universities as special places, one, because they're full adults, even the students are adults. And two, it's uh, the idea that our democracy relies on robust discussion and innovation within our institutions of higher learning. So I think, you know, academic freedom has been an area where, you know, left and right have agreed though, you know, at different times. You know, different kinds of speech is particularly disfavored by those in power. And so you're always going to have the battle lines around what is the speech that the people in power don't like. And for us at the ACLU, it's a bit about, you know, when lots and lots of people are upset, you you know, legitimately upset. Part of our role as an organization that's been around for 100 years trying these cases is to say, we understand these concerns and here are some of the reasons that don't want to necessarily give the government more authority to regulate what people can and can't say Uh, there's all sorts of other ways that we can address some of these issues so you know i would say yes academic freedom has been a a sort of traditional area of overlap and sort of bipartisanship or nonpartisanship. but i will say that this current effort to limit academic freedom to limit what is taught in schools contrary to all of the evidence from the educational research is a highly political, highly politicized, highly partisan endeavor. And it's coming primarily from state legislatures. It's not even coming from educators. It's not coming from school uh, district officials who are lifelong educators. It's coming from politicized school boards and state legislatures who are looking to score political points, but at the expense of, of children's education and adults education.
1: We talked to Professor Dawkins about this briefly and she was a librarian for 15 years and she mentioned, you know, I used to have a lot of leeway and authority to make the decisions that I wanted to make about what books are in my library, but more and more we're seeing that legislatures and school boards are making those decisions or making challenges to books themselves. What do you think is the impact when the power is taken out of educated professionals to make those decisions and given to basically politicized politicians?
0: the fundamental question, right? With all of the First Amendment questions, it's a matter of who gets to decide, right? And so the the main issue that we've always taken up is we don't wanna give the government too much power to decide. Now, in a situation where it's a public library, the librarian themselves might be sort of functioning as the state in some ways. But I think, you know, on the one hand, the government has significant leeway to decide what books to put in its libraries and what topics to cover in public schools, right? I can't cover every single thing exactly as everyone would necessarily want, right? It's got to make some choices to include some things, not include other things. So there is some inherent discretion that is left up not just to to teachers and and individual librarians, but also to districts and departments of education to craft curriculum, right? You don't really want judges dictating the specifics of exactly how each state should craft its curriculum. That's outside their area of expertise. But we do think that in certain circumstances where the legal phrase is, there's no reasonable relationship to a legitimate pedagogical interest. Right. So there has to be at least in order for the state to limit students access to information, there has to be some reasonable relationship to a legitimate pedagogical interest. Right. Which is not that high a bar, but where it's clearly cutting pasting these vague overbroad different statutes trying to outdo your colleagues in another state for how restrictive and how draconian the bill you can make to make a political point. And again, it's contrary to the evidence that says that providing comprehensive, inclusive education to students that provides a variety of perspectives. Most state departments of education, in fact, require this already. And it's the legislatures who are now saying, no, you can't talk about race. You can't talk about gender. So. We think that even though there is some inherent discretion for state officials to craft their curriculum, they can't limit speech for no good reason,
2: So connected to this, what are the legal issues that we see raised by book bans? And what is the legal foundation for the complaints that people are bringing up?
0: So there's two related legal issues. For the book bans, the question is when the, removing a book, when removing access or substantially limiting access by like putting this behind the desk, requiring a sign-in sheet to special access, in, in some way, removing access, removing easy access to books that have already been purchased. Again, not every library can be required to carry every single book. The decisions about what books to buy are, is different than which books will be removed. And the question is, if you're removing a book from circulation, if you're essentially removing access to these ideas it can't be purely for a viewpoint basically it can't be just because you don't like the ideas inside you know there are there may be other reasons to remove a book but it can't be for purely political or partisan reasons or because you don't agree with the viewpoint if it's not age appropriate if it's not relevant if scientific evidence has disproven it or something like that you know there may be other reasons that books get removed from circulation. But what we've seen right now is books being presumptively removed simply because of the topics that they cover, right? LGBTQ issues in particular, issues around race, gender, and racism. And in in several places, we've seen the books sort of placed under administrative review. Which we think functionally is the same as a ban, but can be somewhat, somewhat trickier to to challenge in a, in a court of law. But that is the sort of general framework for what the legal rules are that govern. Like you're you're violating someone's First Amendment rights when you remove when you essentially ban books and and their access to them. In terms of the the bans on inclusive education, the education gag orders, these sort of prohibited or divisive concepts that are being passed in many legislatures. We bring a variety of legal claims there. And I'll just say quickly, four claims we've brought in Oklahoma. One is a vagueness claim. So this is a due process claim. I know this is a SCOTUS podcast, so I'll, I'll <laughs> forgive me if I if I go into the legal claims for a minute. One is a due process vagueness claim, which is actually independent of the content of the laws. It says, we argue that On the face of the law, on plain reading, you can't reasonably expect someone of ordinary intelligence to understand what is prohibited and what is not, because it's so vaguely written. And, you know, this is made worse because teachers' licenses are on the line. If they violate this law, they can have their license revoked, and nobody understands what it says, what it means, right? So there are several provisions that are on their face, too vague to be enforceable. They open the door to arbitrary and discriminatory enforcement. Then we have two First Amendment claims. As I mentioned, there's, certain, there's like special rules that apply in higher ed. So we have a special claim around viewpoint based discrimination in higher education and a limitation on academic freedom. We also have a claim on behalf of students, in particular K 12 students, as well as college students, about their right to receive information. And there is strong precedent. I know you're on the West Coast from the ninth. So there's a case called R.C.P. Douglas, where the ninth circuit explicitly recognized that the first amendment protects students' right to receive information free of uh, partisan political interference. And there in Arizona, uh, the legislature sought to limit access to a uh, Latinx curriculum. And so we have a similar claim, basically saying that you know, K-12 students have the right to have access to inclusive education that discusses race and gender, the good, the bad, and the ugly of Americans. And then the final claim is an equal protection claim, which is basically saying that the law, it's clear from the legislative record, from what the lawmakers said when they were passing it, that there was racial animus behind the law and that the law has a racial disparate impact because As much as inclusive education is great for all students, the lack of inclusive education is particularly harmful to students of color.
1: Okay, so what I'm hearing is that that largely, not totally, but kind of parallels the decision in Gonzales versus Douglas in Arizona with the Mexican-American studies curriculum and basically that a law both can have racial animus and disproportionate impact on certain races when it is enacted. What would you say about you know how the legal support for academic freedom and access to information has kind of been eroded in recent years and that the standard the court set in PICO and that other courts have kind of backed might not still stand in these cases? Or are you concerned that the legal support has eroded? It's
0: a good question. I mean, I was just reading this. Where is this book now? Uh, by Driver, sort of the, the schoolhouse gate. That he talks about, you know, was it, did we reach this high water mark with Tinker? And you know, <clears throat> I'm not a legal historian, so I defer to to the real experts to sort of give the full historical analysis. But I do think that in many ways, our First Amendment work and our litigation is trying to protect the line. And so we're not necessarily trying to establish new legal rules. There are some areas where the First Amendment, we're still trying to establish new legal rules. But in many areas, I think including school speech, we're trying to hold the line that was set in these landmark cases that recognize students' First Amendment rights. And I think there has been a, a chipping away in certain circumstances. I think there have been major victories. I think the BL case that I mentioned earlier was not necessarily destined to go that way. It was my boss, David Cole's brilliant advocacy and the great litigation that was done by the whole team. So I think, you know, there's reason for hope. There's definitely reason for hope. It's in maybe more hope in First Amendment land than there are in other areas, given the current makeup of the, of the Supreme Court in particular, but the federal judiciary more broadly.
1: What books are we seeing challenged over and over again in schools now? And why are these the books being challenged in who is doing the challenging most of the time?
0: There's certainly a pattern. As I mentioned, I think that books talking about gender, LGBTQ issues broadly have been under a microscope for several years now, for about a decade, our LGBTQ rights team at the ACLU has been challenging these book bans, queer. There are several other titles that have been widely banned. Somebody has two mommies. I'm I'm forgetting all the the names of the specific titles, but literally sort of anything that touches on gender or queer lifestyle in, in any way, including totally age appropriate stories, have been subject to scrutiny. And I think, you know, likewise, books, like Morris and all any any kind of treatment, of racism in America, gender, any any sort of controversial topics that 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 paint a, a nuanced, complicated picture of of where we've been and who we are as a country. I think have come under scrutiny. But in particular, books about LGBTQ and and Black Americans have been prevalent on these lists. I mean, where are they coming from? There is a centralized list. You know there are these lists that are being circulated, and there are slide decks. I've seen them. There are several out there about sort of quote unquote how to root out CRT in your local area, how to become an activist on quote unquote CRT. Now, of course, when they say CRT, they're using that as a bucket for any sort of racial anxiety that they may be harboring. It's critical race theory is actually. You know a legal discipline that has its own context and history but it you know this term has been co-opted and then become a rallying cry and so people have been sort of empowered to say you know one of the slides on the in in this deck says you know go to your local school board and raise a ruckus and we've all seen those videos from Loudoun county and so many other places of these school boards being disrupted they say join your kids equity and diversity committee in the pta and. You know, grind everything to a halt, and I can say I have a seven-year-old and a four-year-old, and my own kids' PTA in Brooklyn, New York, was co-opted by someone who followed this slide and joined the diversity committee. Derailed everything. There are also these lists and of books to keep an eye out, and so you know, people are you know submitting lists in whole or in part, and saying you know there there is always you know in any decent library. There's going to be some procedure to, to go through to sort of challenge a book. And, you know, anyone has the right to submit a complaint. The librarian can review those complaints. But, sort of, the co optation of this process to preemptively remove any texts about which any question has been raised, we think raises serious constitutional concerns.
2: Yeah. So, at the end of the day, who should have the power to make decisions about what books belong in school libraries? Is it parents? Is it students? Is it teachers? Is it administrators, legislators, courts? There are so many people who have an interest in the lives of students. And so who at the end of the day gets to make that call?
0: It's a great question. I think, you know, in terms of the this, this school district, I think ideally it would be, you know, there would be librarians themselves would be empowered to make Lots of decisions about what to include or not include in their particular school library. I think it would be appropriate for state and district officials to provide guidelines and procedures and recommendations. I think they certainly have a legitimate role to play in, in populating our school curricula and and libraries. And I think you know parents also we should be empowered to be informed about their students' education. If if they maybe you know it it would be great if they could have access to it knowing what are in the libraries and what topics are being covered. I think the issue is, you know, there's a long standing practice that parent doesn't want their kid to read a particular book. They can say, I don't want my kid to check out that particular book or something like that. But that's different than prohibiting access to this information for all students. You know, parents have a long standing right to opt out of certain topics or certain issues. right? But opting out is different than banning for everybody else. And so I certainly don't think we should be in a position of giving any individual parent the the power to sort of derail uh, a whole curricular endeavor.
1: I think you bring up a good point with the legitimate interest of legislatures in having a role in some guidelines about what curriculum and what libraries should have, because I think I can get in the headspace a lot of times of, Our legislatures have no say in what our libraries have that should be made, that decision should be made by the experts. But I also think about how in California, you know, we have laws that mandate ethnic studies. And that's a really good thing, because in California, we actually are promoting at times diverse curriculum and diverse ideas. But and obviously in California, especially where I live, we don't have the type of book removals that other states are subject to. So what should our listeners be doing to make sure? they're educated and informed beyond what might be happening in their schools and in their communities?
0: It's a great question. I mean, I think one thing is that you would be surprised where these things happen. And, where, and I think where, whether you're in a red state, a blue state, in a place where that is passed a law or not, I mean, I'm a litigator, right? So the, we have prioritized challenging statewide laws primarily. Uh, we also have a, law, a lawsuit in Missouri challenging a book ban in a particular school. That's not a statewide law. But in terms of the education gag orders, we've been sort of focusing on statewide policies that we can attack on constitutional grounds. But the vast majority of, of issues are arising at the school level, the district level. They are not being published on the front page of any newspapers. The ACLU National Office never becomes aware of the vast majority of these things. Because teachers are quietly changing their curriculum, the chilling effect is what we call it under the First Amendment. The chilling effect has already been widespread, even beyond the jurisdictions where there is a law or policy in place. So I think there's a lot for us all to do in terms of You know, paying attention to what's going on in our particular schools, changes that are being made to the curriculum pressure that is being placed on teachers or administrators to avoid, you know, what's often being called controversial materials. Of course, everyone agrees that things should be presented in a, in a fair and age appropriate way, but there's a difference between saying, you know, don't teach racist ideas and saying don't talk about racism. And really what the idea behind a lot of these laws is to prohibit people from feeling like they can actually talk about racism and sexism and the role that they play in our society.
1: On a more local level, what questions should students be asking their teachers and administrators and how should students be making sure that the books and curriculum at their school are what they want to see and are representing not only them, but diverse perspectives and the other students at their school.
0: I think to the extent that you have relationships with teachers, it'd be interesting to ask them what sort of pressures they're feeling, changes that they've been making. I think, as you said, just these bans on inclusive education are a backlash. I think they're a backlash to significant progress that's been made over the last few decades in terms of moving from what was for generations, of a very whitewashed history of our country. And I think there's been significant progress made in many places towards a more comprehensive and inclusive narrative about where we came from and who we are and what's going on in our country even today. So I, I think, you know, just making sure that that progress continues and encouraging that process and making sure that your educators know how much you appreciate when they do make space for for diverse perspectives, whether it be race, gender, national origin, religion, any sort of acknowledgement of 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 how complex and how how you know rich our country's history is. So I think, you know, for individual students to be able to support that process, which I, I think, you know, we shouldn't be we shouldn't be too defeatist. I think we should be proud of the fact that so much progress has been made and the fact that we can continue to push forward.
1: Thank you for ending on an optimistic note. I know this can feel like a pessimistic subject and feel like things are going badly, but it's good to recognize the progress that's been made. I just want to say thank you so much for joining us. We so appreciate that you can make the time to come on the podcast today.
0: Thanks so much for having me. And uh, congratulations on, on so many impressive gets so far.
1: Thank you. We just
2: spoke with April Dawkins and Emerson Sykes about removing books from school libraries and censorship on campus. With today's podcast, we hope you learned that schools cannot completely restrict access to opinions and viewpoints in their libraries, but that there isn't much clarity on who gets to decide these questions and what the framework for deciding them should be. And this lack of clarity has allowed schools and legislatures to implement big, severe restrictions on what students can read.
1: But we're moving on from freedom of speech in schools. In fact, we'll be back in two weeks with an episode about when students can express religious beliefs in public schools, featuring Westside Community Schools versus Mergens and Good New Clubs versus Milford Central. If you want to do some research on those cases, we recommend reading up before our next episode, or you can just let us teach you.
2: Leave us a rating, drop us a review, and as always, for more coverage of the Supreme Court by teenagers, check out the High School SCOTUS website at highschoolscotus.com. On the blog, you can read oral argument previews, opinion analysis, and interviews with eminent legal scholars. Literally everything you need to stay in touch with the court. That's HighSchoolScotus.com. We can't wait to see you next time.
1: Bye!